Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from both sides of the debate over the need for more government regulation on big tech. In short, do we want or need a fairness doctrine for the current times? We'll be joined by two guests today with competing thoughts on the subject. First, Nate Hockman, staff writer at National Review for the Affirmative. And then Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer for National Review and host of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Nate Hockman is staff writer at National Review. You can find him on Twitter at NJ Hockman. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. You did write a piece at the American Conservative that was headlined Conservatives for the Fairness Doctrine. If you read, though, you're not necessarily arguing for the return of the Fairness Doctrine, but saying the framework is valuable. Should conservatives recall the Fairness Doctrine with more admiration than perhaps is commonly shown? Right. So I think it's important to note, as, as you said, the the idea that there could be even a fairness doctrine for the sort of digital communications platforms that we're talking about, to me, seems nonsensical. It was a policy framework that was designed specifically for a very different kind of communications medium, uh, most notably radio. Um, and it's not something that I think conservatives should really think seriously about in the context of big tech. But the point that I was making in the piece was trying to sort of recover this lost history of the fact that the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine by the Reagan administration was actually a much more controversial proposition within conservatism than I think a lot of conservatives remember it as today. And you had staunch conservatives from, you know, Pat Buchanan and Phil Schlafly to Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott to, you know, National Review publisher Bill Rusher. Um, and even within the, uh, the, the Reagan administration, you had, you know, policy advisors like Gary Bauer militating against uh, the Reagan administration's ultimate uh, successful effort to repeal the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, and one of the reasons that I thought that was interesting is because the arguments that that sort of pro-Fairness Doctrine wing of the conservative movement was making are very similar in sort of tone and principle to the arguments that a lot of conservatives who are more hawkish on some kind of government intervention on big tech today are making. Uh, and the stakes in the, of the actual debate on a sort of first principles level was very similar too. So I think it's instructive, A, because it can help inform the way that conservatives think about big tech and the debates surrounding it today, but B, because I think it raises uh, serious questions about whether or not the allegations that government intervention of some kind in big tech is a betrayal of conservative principles are actually fair, or if there actually is a kind of principled conservative argument for a, some kind of government intervention or public policy to rein in big tech today. Let me ask that. So on these sort of first the first principles argument on something like this, opponents uh, would say, you know, limited government, free markets, free speech. Those are the principles that rule, say, an argument like this. Can you point to a, a history uh, of conservative thought support for this idea of using public policy to limit the power of private uh, media? Uh, and perhaps private media monopolies, depending on what we're talking about here. Certainly. I mean, and that's exactly what conservatives who were defending uh, ultimately unsuccessfully the fairness doctrine were making. Uh, so the arguments, again, and you can see the parallels pretty quickly with big tech today, was that a lot of these radio broadcasters 
actually didn't obtain their ability to broadcast on the airwaves in a totally free market. There was already a kind of government uh, public policy set of uh, licensing requirements that they had to obtain. And there was a scarce uh, a scarcity of, of licenses and the sort of scarcity rationale that had been offered in Supreme Court cases was that because their access to the airwaves already was through uh, these sort of government mechanisms, that the kind of idea of the radio airwaves as this neutral marketplace of ideas was actually the wrong way to think about it. I think that has very obvious implications for the discussion of big tech today with the debate surrounding Section 230. I think the arguments about uh, you know some sort of government interventions or, or sort of fairness requirements in terms of big tech content regulation being a violation of free market principles, again, runs up against the fact that a lot of these big tech companies didn't amass the enormous sort of even monopolistic power over the public narrative through a completely free market. Uh, they did it with these really expansive uh, and targeted liability protections that they've enjoyed since the 1990s with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So again, I think the question isn't really about sort of some kind of massive uh, you know, government intervention that would violate the First Amendment. It's about whether or not the government is obligated to provide these targeted provisions and deals to these large tech companies without any kind of uh, uh, you know, requirements in return that they actually use those protections in the interests of the American people. And to me, it seems obvious, uh, you know, just in the same way that the conservatives were arguing against repealing the Fairness Doctrine in the 1980s, um, that, that that's not a violation of conservative principles and that actually, insofar as uh, conservatives are going to continue supporting those kinds of protections for big tech companies, it's fair to ask for something in return. What I ask about two ideas that you discussed there. First, uh, the, the scarcity rationale, which is used uh, to, to defend uh, the fairness doctrine, this idea that because there is a limited amount of bandwidth, there's limited TV stations, limited radio stations, and that scarcity and the government's responsibility to assign it to entities allows uh, for this to, to happen. When we look at, at big tech and the internet at large, there's not a scarcity of bandwidth, right? I mean, a anyone could, and this is the, the argument too, anyone could start their own X, could start their own Y, could market their own whatever. Why is the open range of the internet so similar to the, the scarce resources of these TV and radio licenses? Well, because the industry that we're actually talking about in these massive communications platforms, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, uh, it, it was actually built with these relatively scarce protections that were targeted specifically to those Silicon Valley companies. So, you know, companies like Twitter would not exist today were it not for the provisions uh, encoded into something like Section 230. Um, and as a result, you know, the the various ways that conservatives are worried about those big tech companies abusing their power today is a direct result of the power that those companies were only able to build because of these government provisions. So, you know, a true, you know, radical sort of free market approach, which is not something that I support, would just be repealing Section 230 altogether. But I think that the critics of that move are correct in arguing that that would effectively just decimate uh, these companies altogether and probably have a variety of adverse consequences that conservatives wouldn't like. So I think the more prudent conversation to have is about whether or not Section 230 needs to be updated to acknowledge the fact that insofar as these companies are abusing the power that they've been provided by the government, um, if they do want to continue to 
actually enjoy those those sort of protections that they're getting from the government. Uh, some kind of basic recognition of sort of First Amendment principles for discourse is totally warranted. Talking with Nate Hockman, a staff writer at National Review. Find him on Twitter at NJ Hockman about uh, big tech and, and potential uh, government regulation in, in that sector. You write about a, a legal and regulatory environment that gave tech companies a massive advantage over non-tech companies in that realm. We've talked about 230 a little bit. What else is out there that you think gave that advantage to those tech companies over non-tech companies? Well, look, there's a sort of complex web of government provisions that were given to help companies like Google and other Silicon Valley companies uh, actually amass their power. You know, obviously, a lot of these companies enjoyed government grants to start up, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that those those sort of existing provisions, you know, government funds, et cetera, are an argument in and of itself for the kind of reforms that I think would be prudent, because uh, if that were true, it would, it would justify government intervention in you know almost every single major industry uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. But I do think, again, that the sort of complex regulatory framework that protects uh, and sort of immunizes these companies from being open to any kind of liability in response to their relatively blatant censorship of, of conservatives and of just any sort of dissident viewpoint uh, whatsoever, whether it's, you know, COVID, whether it's the 2020 election, whether it's, you know, the Hunter Biden laptop story, all these kind of infamous uh, sort of flashpoints in the debates over big tech censorship. Uh, that is something that you can directly tie to Section 230 provisions. So to me, it's, it's again, it's, it's, it's uh, entirely appropriate to look at whether or not those Section 230 provisions are still serving their original intention that, that was behind them in the 1990s. And I think a you know, serious reassessment of that would arrive at the conclusion that they're not. You also write, the name brand titans of Silicon Valley pose a far more potent threat to the American public than the media conglomerate that the Fairness Doctrine aimed to regulate. We are in a more fractured media world now than we were then. Shouldn't there be less urgency about this topic now, considering the myriad ways that people can get their information? You know, I think actually, ironically, this is sort of an inversion of the conservative criticisms of the fairness doctrine that were leveled in the 1980s and, and obviously since. You know, the, the conservative criticism of the fairness doctrine, uh, somewhat legitimately, was that the fairness doctrine basically, uh, you know, set these sort of artificial limits on who could have access to the airwaves and therefore who could have access to actually engaging in the public narrative. The problem today is that sort of progressive technocrats in Silicon Valley like the people on, for example, the Twitter public safety team, uh, are are essentially doing their own kind of fairness doctrine, except it's skewed far further towards the progressive left than I think the original intent of the fairness doctrine was. So you do actually have this kind of regulation of the public narrative and the public conversation. It's just coming from these massive and often sort of government immunized uh, actors in Silicon Valley rather than from bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., I don't necessarily see that as a preferable arrangement. And I also think the implications for just how far-reaching internet discourse is uh, are much more significant and will continue to become much more significant as the technology progresses than what we were facing with the sort of radio airwaves uh, in the 1980s. And as a result, actually, what I'm ultimately interested in is, in a weird way, a kind of uh, inverse version of what the conservatives who repealed the Fairness Doctrine were arguing for, which is actually opening up the conversation again and securing a kind of internet 
where you do have something resembling the old First Amendment public square rather than one in which a series of, of, of uh, sort of Silicon Valley technocrats are actually capable of completely policing what Americans see and think. The Fairness Doctrine was fairly explicit about what it expected from these license holders. You had to cover matters of controversy in the public square. You had to make sure both sides were represented. If someone was criticized, you had to contact them and give them a chance to respond. You had all these things that were laid out very specifically. What, for you, would be the goal of this type of regulation in big tech? What is the behavior you want to see? I'm looking, honestly, for something that has much much sort of fewer strings attached, actually, than, than the Fairness Doctrine. I, I really do think there are pretty obvious principles contained in the First Amendment about what free speech is constitutionally protected and what free speech sort of uh, exceeds the limits of constitutional protections. And I think, again, if we care about sort of preserving the traditional American culture of free and open debate, uh, securing that in these technological platforms, which are clearly occupying an increasingly central place in the American public conversation, um, is, is crucial to sort of preserving that, that long, proud tradition. Um, and I think that the, the, the basic sort of litmus test should be uh, securing a kind of non-discrimination or anti-discrimination set of protections that, uh, that, that sort of militate in favor of big tech companies not obviously discriminating based on one specific viewpoint. So again, the obvious flashpoints, you know, in recent years having to do with censoring, questioning various COVID narratives, uh, censoring uh, conservatives for a variety of offenses that progressives commit all the time. And then obviously, you know, high profile uh, issues like the Hunter Biden laptop story. I don't think big tech companies should be allowed to do that, particularly, as I said, as they occupy an increasingly large amount of control over what kind of information Americans see in the first place. I think that, you know, those those obvious and sort of blatant examples of ideological bias and discrimination uh, should be a non-starter for, for tech platforms that in an important way are becoming uh, the new kind of public square in the United States. To clarify, too, just on what, you, what you're discussing on the Section 230, uh, there are those that, that say remove 230 completely, and that would uh, theoretically apply not just to big tech, but essentially every website out there that p- publishes uh, unreviewed speech you're saying use 230 in a way that the fairness doctrine was uh, saying if you get this benefit uh, from the government, we could expect you to adhere to certain guidelines that we're going to lay out. That's right. Yeah. And I think there are different ways to actually do that, which, you know, one of one of the, the objections from from critics of Section 230 reform is that it would effectively make it impossible for, say, you know, a website like National Review to police their own comment section. I'm less worried about you know the comment section on a blog or a website that that is sort of specific to you know a specific outlet than I am on these massive big tech platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and I think that those are really the platforms that like I said occupy uh, an enormous amount of control over the flow of information in American life and those are really the ones that should be specifically targeted by any prudent Section 230 reform. I don't think that the, that sort of Section 230 reform would have to completely reorient the way that, you know, a, a, a blog or a, an outlet moderates their comment section. But I do think that these massive sort of freewheeling social media websites, which are decentralized in the way in the terms that that different sort of users are able to post their own content on it, um, should be the, the subject of scrutiny for conservative lawmakers and policymakers. And I think anyone who sort of cares about the cause of 
free speech and open debate in the United States. Nate Hockman is staff writer at National Review. You can find him on Twitter at NJ Hockman. Nate, thanks so much for joining us here on the Future of Freedom podcast. Hey, thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. And for an opposing perspective, we turn to Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer for National Review, host of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Charles, thanks for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thanks for having me. Talking today and in discussing this question about whether some sort of government regulation is necessary on big tech. And Charles, many times people who are in favor of such regulation look back and say something like the Fairness Doctrine. Now, the Fairness Doctrine has not been enforced for going on 40 years now. Uh, It applied to radio and TV stations who use the public airwaves, and the government was involved in some way. Should conservatives in any way look back with fondness on the era of the Fairness Doctrine for broadcast? No, I don't think so, for a couple of reasons. The first is that irrespective of one's views on the Fairness Doctrine per se, it was applied to a media world that was intrinsically limited. The reason that the government had the opportunity to apply the Fairness Doctrine in the first place was that radio runs on waves and that waves collide with one another and that as a result you can only have a certain amount of radio stations or broadcast TV stations and therefore there's an argument for government regulation and we have thanks to technology escaped that so we shouldn't want to go back to a circumstance in which we are registering our media outlets with the government on the merits I don't trust the government to play this role Hmm. I don't think there is an objective definition of fairness. I think there are free people who make arguments and there are free listeners who hear those arguments and then make their own minds up and act and vote accordingly. As we have seen over the last few years, the whole notion of misinformation or fairness or hate is so malleable and so easy to corrupt that It would be madness for anyone to want to bring it back into our media, especially conservatives. You say you don't trust the government to pull off something like this. In any way, do you think the people through the government, though, should have an interest in in overseeing or balancing the, the, the political speech on big tech platforms? No. That is ultimately forced speech if you tell whether it's back in the day cbs radio or now twitter that it has to print a contrary opinion or alternatively that it can't print an opinion you are interfering with the first amendment rights of that entity now we hear a lot about section 230 and i know we're going to talk about that but the reason that the federal government is unable to heavily regulate Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or what you will, it's not Section 230. It's the First Amendment. Most of the objections to big tech's freedom are actually objections to the First Amendment because the operators of tech companies, in precisely the same way as the operators of, say, 
this podcast or national review where I write are allowed under the First Amendment to decide what they will and will not feature. And that doesn't change just because the content is externally provided. Let's go to Section 230, as you mentioned it. The the advocates for activity on behalf of the government on these tech companies look at Section 230 and they say that big tech, Facebook, Twitter specifically, is that they're privileged. The government is giving them a privilege through Section 230. They, they benefit from government action here because they are then protected from liability from some of the unreviewed speech on those sites. People who post to Twitter, comments, posts on Facebook. That's what Section 230 does for them. It's a benefit. Thus, the government has an interest in stepping in and doing some regulation. Do you think there's any uh, uh, validity to that argument? No, because I don't think that it is a privilege. I think it is the government setting the rules within an area that government already controls. The reason that you need to determine who is liable for speech is because those who are speaking could, in certain circumstances, via the government, be held liable for that speech. We're not talking here about a government intervention in a free market. We're talking about government setting the rules where it already exists. If I, on this podcast... Uh, say something libelous, I can be sued, but I will be sued via channels that exist because we have a government. Mm -hmm. If I, on this podcast, say something that violates the law, the, the rare category of speech that is not covered under Brandenburg v. Ohio, I could be prosecuted for that speech by the government. So the question is, who are we going to prosecute? Not whether we're going to prosecute. We already have libel laws, and we already have a handful of criminalized speech laws. The question is who we're going to prosecute. And what Section 230 does, I think it is a fantastic law because of this. What Section 230 does is say, we're not going to prosecute the people who hosted the speech and did so without any knowledge whatsoever. We're going to prosecute the people who spoke. That is a small c conservative value. <laughs> that is accountability. It is ridiculous to suggest that if somebody logs on to Twitter, which does not pre-clear all of its content, unlike, say, an edited magazine, and says something that is libelous or criminal, that Twitter should be held liable for that. Of course it shouldn't. The person who said it should be held liable. What Section 230 does uh, is send the complaint to the right party. And just on a practical basis, this isn't my case for it. I, I have a neutral principle case for it. But just as a, a practical matter, who do you think in this culture is most likely to suffer if that goes away? Hmm. Because I think it's conservatives. I think what will happen is that Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and anyone else will take a look at their newfound liability and use it as an excuse to silence people who they think are most likely to get them into trouble. So suddenly, I'm not allowed to say what I like on Twitter because Twitter is worried that it will be sued if I do. They're not going after the progressives in San Francisco in such a case. They're going to go after the pro-life mother in Alabama. Charles C.W. Cook is with us, senior writer at National Review and host of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. You're on the Future of Freedom podcast. Another argument is this idea that they should be regulated because they are common carriers now, uh, redefined as, as de facto public accommodations. And again, thus, the government has a reason to step in. Should these entities be thought of as public accommodations? 
No, I don't find that convincing at all. Twitter is a website. Facebook is a website. It is not uh, analogous to, say, a phone line. A common carrier historically was a phone line provided by Bell South. Mm -hmm. And the argument was you can only get one phone line into your house from one company. You don't have the ability to create your own system. And as such, the phone company has to be completely neutral on what you use the phone to say. Which means if I call you up and I say all sorts of horrendous things, they can't do anything about it. The analog to that is, say, an internet service provider, or maybe the trunk lines that run between data centers. I think there is an argument that those institutions should be bound by federal law and uh, forced to be viewpoint neutral. I would not object, for example, to a federal law that said that Comcast or Verizon is not allowed to decide what data comes in and out of my house, which websites I visit, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. But a website or a data center is not equivalent. There are many of them, uh, and those websites are owned by individuals or corporations that have First Amendment rights. When you start saying that Twitter is not allowed to prevent someone from using its site, you're not drawing an analogy with the phone line. You're saying that the person that I might use a phone line to call is not allowed to hang up. That's where this gets crazy. Mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing special uh, about Twitter or Facebook. Uh, they are one part of an enormous internet on which there is a great deal of competition and that is privately owned and protected under the First Amendment. Uh, and I think this is just the wrong analogy to draw. If they are not public accommodations, are they too close to a monopoly? Are they too close to having a monopolization of the market? The reaction in many quarters is build your own blank if you don't like what Twitter is doing or what Facebook is doing. It's not easy. There are many hurdles. And in some cases, if you're trying to distribute an app, uh, for example, you've got to go through uh, these channels that are once again controlled by, say, Amazon or, or Apple or, or, or companies like that. Do you see a problem with the, the, the amount of the market controlled and the amount of control that those entities have over the market overall? Well, I think we have to separate out questions here. Is Twitter a monopoly? No, of course it's not. And we know it's not because the journalists on Twitter <laughs> go on to its competitor, Truth Social, and screenshot Donald Trump's truths and put them up on Twitter mm -hmm. while having Mastodon in their name. So we could see competition there, as we've seen competition with, say, Facebook, because it wasn't historically Facebook people were calling a monopoly. It was MySpace. Go back to 2006-7, read the Wall Street Journal, you will see an almost relentless freakout about the monopoly that is MySpace, uh -huh. which, of course, then gave way to Facebook, and MySpace, in turn, had taken over from Friendster, all in the space of 20 years. But I don't think social media sites uh, can be reasonably described as monopolies. Nor do I think that uh, hosting providers, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, Azure, Rackspace, or what you will can. And nor do I think that the app stores that relate to, say, Android phones or Apple phones or Samsung phones or what you will can be. What I do think is that there is a risk of collusion. Mm -hmm. Now, what we saw a few years ago with Parler was alarming. 
we do not in this country allow cartelization or illegal collusion. And if it comes out that the App Store run by Apple or the Google Play Store run by Google in conjunction with major hosts and data centers are getting together to squash a given company. I can see a federal role there. Uh, but absent that, this is not an area that needs Washington to get involved. Charles, is there anything that you've seen or read in the release of these so-called Twitter files since Elon Musk has taken over the company that has encouraged you to take a second look at some of this uh, with the government being involved in some of this communication or coercion, as you as you said in the last answer, or involved in some of the operations or editorial decisions at some of these companies, does that change the perspective at all for you? Well, it doesn't change anything, but I have long been on the record arguing that when the government is involved, it's an entirely different matter. We're no longer talking about private companies. Mm -hmm. We're no longer talking about whether something is a monopoly or a cartel or a public accommodation or a common carrier. We're talking about the government's suppression of speech, which is illegal. Uh, I am in favor of a bill that was introduced, I think, last year by Senator Marco Rubio that would require any federal government official at any level to uh, divulge any communications that he or she has with a social media company. That seems to me a no-brainer. The federal government is in some circumstances, of course, allowed to communicate with social media companies. But there is an obvious problem when they're asking for material to be removed, not just on First Amendment grounds, although that's a huge problem, but because there's a conflict of interest in that the federal government also regulates these businesses as they regulate any other business. And so there's the possibility of coercion. I think Congress should pass that bill. I think they should provide almost no exemptions. I suppose there must be some marginal exemptions for, say, active investigations into terrorism where mm -hmm. you wouldn't want the details to come out. But I'm nervous of that sort of proposition because often it gets abused. Uh -huh. Everything suddenly becomes terrorism, right? Um, so I would support that uh, very happily. But I, I think the reason I would support that is because there you are actually talking about government involvement. And in most of the cases that we have debated over the last few years, we're not. Final question for Charles C. W. Cook on this topic. Um, advocates for action have said that Silicon Valley companies, Google, Facebook, YouTube, they pose a potent threat to the American public square and a functional public debate than even, say, the, the media conglomerates or the media owners during the Fairness Doctrine era. Do they ascribe too, too much power and influence to social media and, in some ways, what happens on the web? Yes, they do, for a couple of reasons. First, because there's so much more competition now and the industry turns over so much more quickly. Second, because although it's difficult for people such as myself to remember, given what I do for a living, <laughs> most people don't use Twitter. Mm -hmm. Most people don't care about Twitter. Most people don't really care about what's on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube either. If we go back in time and compare the power that the big three 
broadcasters had in the 1950s and 60s to the power that social media companies have now. It's not even close. Uh, the modern world is far more uh, diversified, fractured, uh, and atomized. And as a result, I don't think there is a, a solid comparison to be made. Charles C.W. Cook, you can find him writing in the print edition of National Review and also at nationalreview.com. He's a senior writer there. And also check out his Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Charles, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. We thank both of our guests on today's program. Nate Hockman, staff writer at National Review. Find him at NJ Hockman on Twitter. And Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer for National Review, host of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. You can find him writing at nationalreview.com. For more episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network.